Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I am joined here today by my co-host and star of this show, Bob Schaefer. This is Touch Em All, episode 423 on the network. Before we get to our great guest today, we got a packed show for you today. The back end of a Real Voices of the Game triple header started off by Hall of Famer Kevin Kernan and our, our resident Hall of Fame pitcher, Jim Cott. And this guest will, is a great way to cap the day. But want to thank our supporters here, First Jaw Bats, a new Major League Baseball certified bat this year. We're one of their first partners here. Uh, go on their website, use RVG at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your first wood bat or any of their apparel. Jeff Fry used it this week, our host with She Gone uh, down in Red Sox Fantasy Camp, hit a double in his first at bat. My son Tanner's using it. Both lefty and righty use the M110 model and absolutely loves it. So we recommend Jaw Bats to you. Want to thank Sports Podcast Group and the Webbies. These are real names, Shafe. I'm not making them up. They uh, have nominated us for Best Pod Baseball Podcast Network of the Year. So we're happy to be a part of that world right now with the Foxes and the ESPNs and all the big dogs. So we're, uh, we're up for those two awards. And want to thank our new marketing partner, Millions, who is taking in all our potential ad sponsors and all of our suitors are going to be handling that for us. So we, I guess that's kind of like an agent, Shafe. So we've hit the big time here. And uh, again, want to welcome you back to your show. You do a great job every week. You're my savant. I learn every time I'm on a podcast with you. And I'll, I'll turn it over to you to welcome our great guest today. All right. Thanks, Dave. And uh, I'm fortunate and honored to have one of the best Red Sox player ever, Nomar Garcia Parra. Most people just know him by Nomar. Not many baseball players go by their first name, but Nomar, you say Nomar, everybody knows who he is. But uh, I was director of player development for the Red Sox, and in 1994, we drafted Nomar, number one, out of Georgia Tech. And uh, he was always a special player, a special person. We sent him to uh, Sarasota, which are a high A team, which most players come out of draft, no matter what where they went to school or college or whatever. He just started in the rookie league or maybe low A, but he went right to high A. He, he learned it very quickly. He's a special player, a special guy. And I got to tell you one little story before we get into the rest of it. But Dan Duquette was a general manager of Red Sox. He was probably one of the first analytical guys. One day he calls me and says, you know, uh, no more. He's got to walk more. He's got to walk 10% of the times. I said, Dan, he's hitting about 370. I don't know if he wants to walk or hit singles and doubles and triples. But I said, and one thing I say, he has an accurate bat. When he swings, he makes good contact, and it usually goes fair and usually goes hard. He said, well, you got to talk to him. you got to tell him he's got to walk 10% of the time. So I went down to Sarasota, and I didn't really want to say it, but I had to say it. I said, no more. I got to tell you something. Uh, Mr. Duquette thinks you should walk 10% of the time. What do you think? He says, well, you tell Mr. Duquette, I got to learn how to hit, then I'll learn how to walk. <laughs> and that was one of the best the best re uh, responses I ever had of any question I asked a guy. Anyway, so no more worked his way to the major leagues, got there at the end of eight in 96, and played uh, toward the end of the season. And he was selected as a rookie of the year in 1997. He became a star for the Red Sox, spent nine years with them. He's a five-tool player, had power, speed, was a great hitter, hit 323 for the Red Sox over his nine years and 313 overall in his major league career. But he had a plus range of shortstop, and he was uh, selected for, uh, played at seven, uh, six All-Star games. He won a Silver Slugger Award. He won two batting titles, hit 357 one year and 372 another year, and that was the highest by a right-handed hitter in a long time, I think since Joe DiMaggio. He's the only player to hit three homers on his birthday. He's the only shortstop to get 10 or, more, 10 or more RBIs in game and hit two grand slams in game. He played 14 seasons. He was inducted into the Red Sox Hall of Fame in 2014. 
He played mostly shortstop, but later in his career, after several injuries, he had a wrist problem that limited his uh, offense for a while. And then he had some uh, problems with, uh, I guess it was his groin and also his Achilles. So it slowed him down a little bit. The Red Sox traded him. He's one of uh, certain guys or listed guys that the Red Sox got rid of, Mo Vaughn, Roger Clemens, and Nomar. They got rid of him for whatever reason late in their careers, and they still had a lot of miles left on their the baseball career, and it both proved that. But anyway, uh, no more married Mia Ham. She was an Olympian, World Cup champion soccer player. They have two twin daughters and her son. Pretty good genes right there. I know that. As soon after retiring as a player, he went into broadcasting and presently does a lot of Dodger games. So, no more. Welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you here, and I appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, well, I appreciate it, man. That was uh, I didn't know all of that stuff. You kind of covered quite a bit there and but you didn't for, you, you misshaped my five emmys that's really what i'm most proud of because i'm tired of seeing my wife's fifa player whoops, greatest soccer player of the year awards that are all standing on the mantle here you know she has like four of them and i'm like can i push those aside with some emmys what do you think and uh, everybody says no but i'm trying so i just thought i'd throw that out there too oh that's good <laughs> so tell us about the game it's a little different now than when you played um yeah, the analytics have kind of taken over. I think there's a lot of value in it, but I don't think there's – when they start evaluating by, uh, you know, analytics only, and they start taking guys out after three times through the lineup and stuff like that, uh, how do you handle that? Uh, well, I, I think, you know, when I watch it, I think when you hear players like that, there's a term people use now, like old school and new school, right? They say new school is more the analytic base. Old school is the non-analytic based. And I think there's just kind of a misconception. I think when some people who might be old school, when they see the game and they they maybe are complaining or it sounds like, oh, they just haven't moved with the times. I, I, I think it's more, not that, they're complaining, not moving with the times. I think there's things that we just enjoyed about the game. I consider myself maybe old school if you want to put that, but there were things that we enjoyed about the game that I think with the new train of thought or the more uh, analytic based more at the forefront is missing. And you want to see some of the greatness of these athletes. I think one of the things you miss is some of the athleticism uh, in these in these incredible athletes that we're seeing today. Um, I think over the years, you know, in baseball, you always want to compare people from the past to the present. It's really hard because of evolution of the human body. Guys are bigger, faster, stronger. The technology, as far as building your body, has changed. So people are bigger, faster, stronger. I have no problem saying they are bigger, faster, stronger now than I was playing. It doesn't take away from what I did, but it doesn't take away from these guys. But the one difference that I see, and I'm a little biased as a shortstop, is I don't get to see these shortstops that are maybe bigger, faster, stronger. I don't see their athleticism nearly as much as at the time as when I was playing. Perfect example is I played in an era when they talked about the shortstops. You know, you have Alex Rodriguez, Derek Jeter, myself. You have Miguel Tejada. You have Omar Vizquel. You have all these incredible shortstops. You can say the same thing right now. Incredible shortstops from Lindor to Seager to, you know, these it, these guys that are so fun to watch. But I don't think we get to see their athleticism nearly as much as when we were playing. Um, you know, now I'm glad they took away the shift. I think the athleticism will start coming back. Uh, that's a perfect example. But, you know, back in the day, we were on, you know, you would see a highlight. You know, you, you, so it was ESPN, the web gems. 
you know, one of the shortstops were a web gem. While if you go in today's game, you might see a web gem from these shortstops once a week, just because, uh, you know, the analytics was let's move them into a spot. You don't have, all you have to do is field within a, a square foot of yourself because we're going to put you in the spot because that's what the data tells us. And we don't see the athleticism. I'm glad the shift is gone. I think we see it more. And the other thing too is that I don't like is not being able to take out the second baseman or shortstop at second base. Um, I know that's more safety, not necessarily analytic driven, but that also used to see the athleticism in these guys. They've made some changes. I think we're starting to see it back, uh, but I think that's where um, some of the discrepancy, I guess it is. And I heard a great line from an individual uh, one time about analytics and data. And he was, and his line was, and he was up for a position for, for a professional uh, sports franchise, a high position, and they asked him about data. And he says, you know, I like to be data informed, not data driven. And I think too many now in baseball and it is data driven rather than data informed to utilize to really see. It's always been there. Data's always been there. They just call it analytics now. So we always had it. So it was no change. But I think um, it's getting, you know, it's getting pushed so much that we start lose sight of the beauty of this game at times. Well, you're right. You know, I like what you said about the, you know, skill. We talked about that many times that um, they've taken a skill out of the game when you can't break up a double play. You know, not only turn a double play need a lot of skills. The second base might play second a little bit, mostly short, but you know, it's a shortstop. You know, you make the double play, you get rid of ball quick, and get up in the air. And if you get knocked down, well, you don't get hurt. But now you don't have that skill of getting up in the air, so you can stay on the base, plant your foot, and throw, and he can't hit you. But another thing is a skill breaking up a double play. You know, it was a big part of a lot of games. They break up double play and keep the inning going. And there's a skill of, you know, going shin to shin, I call it, and break up double play, taking an infielder out without hurting him. But one guy got hurt, and he shouldn't have got hurt because he had no chance to make a double play. He tried to make a double play, and he got hurt. And the slide was probably illegal because he was out of baseline. He should have been called out anyway. But but it's just, uh, you know, the skill is taken out of the game a little bit. And like you said, it was fun watching a double play being broken up or trying to be broken up. And it was skill for in middle infielders to be able to turn it. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because you mentioned about that. I love it. They call it the Chase Utley rule. And he was yeah. over here with the Dodgers. And I know Chase Utley, and I've known him for a long time, even playing against him. And, and you know, everybody's talking, would you, they ask me, what do I think of that play when I go, Ruben Tejada's leg's broken because of Ruben Tejada's own fault. Exactly. Like, exactly. I go, that's, I go, the other thing is he, you, how do you not prepare for a game? Like, how do you not know that in your scouting report? I mean, that's the, another thing is we knew that already. Like that was in, when I played against Chase Utley, we have a scouting report. Why would I ever turn my back on Chase Utley? Cause I know the way he's going to come in at second base. We have a scouting report. We know the players who are coming in hard and how they're going to break up a double play and how we have to prepare for that. We're talking about that as infielder, we're talking about it as a team. We know that. So I don't know how he did not know that because it should have been edged in his yeah. mind, let alone turn my back ever on him coming down on me. So, yeah, and that's how it's changed. You're right. How do we, guys, how do we affect, we, we have a generation of young players now. And, Bob, we talk about my two boys a lot with their ninth graders and eighth graders. Uh, I was doing a clinic yesterday, middle infield clinic, being a former second baseman. And I still instinctively do that little hop at the end, part of its self-preservation, after I turned the double play in the middle and outside of my two boys, I had a group of 48 other kids that had no idea what I was doing and actually asked like, what, what are you doing at the end there? Um, so we have a generation of young players who have no idea how to protect themselves. Um, 
in the midst of that. How, how do we get through that? Or is it even worth um, addressing to them? Um, you know, that's a great question. I don't, <clears throat> I don't know if you have to address it anymore, because if the, the way everybody has to slide and slide into the base, I don't know if they need the hop anymore. I know talking to some of the big league um, coaches, when they have, you know, on the Dodgers, for example, talking to Dino Ebel, who, gosh, what a brilliant mind. I, I, I love talking to him, talk about somebody you just learn from each and every time you sit down next to him and talk about the game. He, he's so amazing. But when they would have guys in the big leagues who were transitioning to, say, second base, and I talked to him, I said, well, you have a young kid coming up who's never played second base, put him in there in the big leagues. I go, how different is that you're teaching now? Okay. He goes, oh, no more. Turning the double play is so different. It's so just as you mentioned, there is no hop. Also, as a second baseman, when you're transitioning, where you put your plant leg, you know, where it has to be. He goes, it could be closer to the game. He goes, it's easier to turn because you know they are not coming to take you out. You know you don't have to prepare for that self-preservation or that hit. Um, and you also, it, and then at the same time, he says, and I got to utilize that to my advantage because I can probably get more on my throw. A lot of times, as you were jumping, as you know, if you guys middle infielder, we know we jump. You lose a little bit. You lose a little zip. Well, you actually have a little bit behind it now because you don't have to leave your feet. You have, you're more planted. You're safe. You can do that. You can use the bag a little bit more even as safety. We used to use that to some degree for ourselves, but still needed that hop in case they rolled over the bag. But they can't even do that anymore. So, yeah, it definitely has affected even to the highest level. So for these young kids, yeah, I don't. that's a great question. I don't know if they necessarily need it. I just hope we just tell them to continue to be athletic and to be aware and also to just be aware uh, to do it properly where you may not hop, but be your body in a position where in case there is an errant slide or that person doesn't know what to slide and hits you by accident, how are you going to be safe? That's a good point. Another, another good point with the sliding. I was just excited at the age of 50, I can still hop like that. <laughs> I, would think, I would think, Dave, you still should teach it to the guys mm -hmm. who can do it because the guys who can't do it, um, like the third baseman are playing third. They don't have that. They're playing second. They don't have that the quickness in their feet. Hopefully someday you may change rule back. I don't know if it'll happen, but in case they do, if you still teach it. And plus there's some guys that don't know how to slide. So they'll have to knock you down. They don't even try to knock you down. So I, I would still teach it for the guys that can learn it because uh, it's going to make them better in the long run. And it will be preventive in case some guy slides the wrong way, which most of them are. I think sliding is probably one of the worst skills in the game now. You know, a lot of guys sliding head first and going over the base, and all well, since the base is a little bigger, not many guys going over the base like you didn't pass. But you agree, no matter the sliding is kind of a, a bad, you know, kind of a lost really, art, right? Kind huh? of a lost art. It's kind of a lost art. It's yeah. Kind of, you know, and I, and yeah, I think there is, yeah, I, I see it at the, uh, the lowest level. It's not necessarily always taught. Um, it's funny because I even do that with my own kids. I remember my daughter, my daughter playing softball, and I remember when. The coach was like, all right, we're all going to wear spikes. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. Before you put on spikes on these uh, these girls, I said, you better teach them how to slide before you start in there. And the coach was like, kind of like, well, what are you talking about? I'm like, spikes are dangerous. And if you don't know how to slide, which I'm watching some of these girls who don't necessarily know how to slide. I said, I know my daughter didn't necessarily practice it. We got to work on it. I said, because she's not wearing spikes until she slides properly with that foot up or else all these girls are going to break their ankles or get seriously hurt. And they were just like, Oh, Oh yeah. I never thought of it. I'm like, yeah, you got to think about that. So yeah, it is kind of get kind of gets pushed to the side, but it's an important part of the game. 
no doubt about it. And like I said, there's a skill in breaking up a double play. You start a little later. You know, I always say wherever the ball is hit to like the left side of second base, you slide to the left side of second base because that's where usually uh, paper man is going to come across the base. And the ball's at the right side, the second baseman shortstep's going to go to the right side, so start over there. And all of a sudden, you know, slide like at a, a one body length away, and so you can hook his ankle, yeah. not spike him, but hook his ankle with your instep and uh, and just knock him down and just take his back foot out of, away from him. Uh, all those little things like that are, yeah, they're still gone. And, I mean, not only that you learn, but also you see now in the in the game where guys would just peel off. They wouldn't even go in or slide or whatever. They're just like, ah, and I shoot. I, I can imagine if I if I was going into second base, and and I just kind of peeled off instead of really sliding in there or trying to. Even if I slid early because I know the middle infielder had it. Oh, if I just peeled off and I came into the dugout, you don't think Movon would have been there on the top step, and all these guys would have grabbed me by the neck and say, "What are you doing, Jeff Fry?" I can only imagine how much they would have been screaming at me and saying, "You're not doing anything. You're not trying to help. You just peel off." Oh. I couldn't imagine. There's no way. I would have just kept running right into the locker room and avoided them and say, okay, I'm going to pack my stuff home. So, yeah, that's all. That, that doesn't happen anymore. Well, there's a way to play the game. And, uh, you know, you're always trying to reward a good play. And a lot of times that break up a double play slide was a good play. Like I said, extended the inning and maybe gave you a chance to win the game. So that was a skill that's just gone now, as well as a double play turning double play. And, uh, you know, the catcher at home plate. I mean, Posey got hurt because he didn't know how to protect himself. The other guy, the guy running up, who forget who it was. Now. I don't think he meant to hurt him, but he just was a, in a bad situation, bad position, and he got hurt. But, you know, Pete Rose nailed uh, Ray Fossey and hurt, probably ruined his career a little bit to a certain extent, but that was how the game was played. Hey, uh, I got a question for you, Nomar, regarding you mentioned, you know, your role as a parent with your your children with a coach. My wife and I are both former college and professional athletes. I coached college basketball for, for 20 plus years. As a parent, I'm very big on going to the games. I sit as far away from the other parents as possible. I don't say boo to the coach. I barely clap sometimes. Um, but I watch the insanity that is parenting right now, running up and down sidelines and uh, doing everything but, uh, uh, I guess, appropriate behaviors. What kind of what kind of parents are you and me? Uh, two, I mean, of the most accomplished that could be the most accomplished parenting duo in the history of youth sports. What are you guys like at games? What's your involvement with your kids' youth progress, and, and what's your communication like with coaches? Uh, you know, it's funny is um, oftentimes I'll, I'll be asked to kind of talk to to parents about this and some of the other stuff that I'm involved with on the youth side. And the message I often give parents and, and tell them. I said, uh, the advice I would give parents is when you go to a game, I go, when you go to a game or when, actually when you watch your child play in the playground, right? I go, when you, when they're on the monkey bars, we're on the swings and they come off. You're as a parent, you watch them and they come off. Are you, there's the first thing you ask them, Hey, how come you swung on the monkey bars that way? How come you use your right arm, not your left arm? How come you, uh, on the swing, how come you didn't kick your legs through, you know, you know, at this certain moment, why did you just, you know, bend your knees? Like, do you, you, do you start critiquing them how they played? And parents are looking at me, I'm like, I'm just at, and I go, we usually, the first thing out of our mouth is, did you have fun? Do you enjoy yourself? That's what we do. And I said, yet when we're at a baseball game or a soccer game or whatever it may be, and we're watching them play, the moment they get off their field, 
you're like, why did you start asking them questions? Why did you catch the ball? Why did you swing like that? Why did you kick the ball that way? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? We start criticizing. And the, in the moment, and I tell parents, I said, the reason is, is I said, because we as parents, you go there, you drive them to, the, to whatever sport event, you're a parent. You're the parent first, you're talking to them. The moment the game starts, you go from parent to fan. And fan is short for fanatic. That's what you are. You're fanatic. And then the moment the game's over, you, a parent takes about an hour and a half or so to go from fanatic back to parent. And the child goes from child to athlete to child in an instant. As soon as the game's over, where's my snack? Where's my drink? Let's right. go. And you're still crazy. I said, act as if, as a parent, you rind yourself that when you go there, you are at a playground. What do you act as if you're behind the fence and watching your child at a playground? Think because and ask them, remember, oh, did you have fun today? Because the other thing is in baseball, they say play ball right before the game starts. Play. They're at play. So you have to remind yourself as a parent that all the time and, should, and, and think about that. So I tell them that. And, uh, and, for, and, you know, for myself, yeah, there are times you get worked up, with it, but I try to remind myself I'm also one of those quiet ones. And I also tell parents this. I said oftentimes and I live in an area where there's a lot of professional athletes and parents here, former professional athletes. And I told when I was telling parents here locally, I said, I'm sure your, your child probably plays with a parent who is a professional athlete around living. They, they all nod their head. I said, notice how oftentimes those, I go, how many times those professional athletes, former professional athletes or college players screaming and yelling, or are they down the line? Are they the quiet ones? Just as you mentioned. And they all like, yeah, they're usually aware quiet. Like, yeah. Cause they know what it takes. They understand what it takes to be, the top level they understand and, and and yelling at them and harping on them isn't necessarily isn't going to get them there they kind of understand that so kind of take a page from that because they understand that listen this is their moment go play go do it i know the stresses you're dealing with it i know the attitude that you you know or what you must be feeling at times we've been there what it takes and we're supposed to be that resource for you often so it's kind of take the way me and i doesn't mean that you know there aren't times we may say something but I think our kids understand when it's coming or what it is. You know, there'll be little subtleties. And they just kind of like, okay, thanks. And we talk about our children. I, I've talked to my kids before when they're playing sports. I'm like, you know, if, if I happen to say something, you know, how, did, how do you take it? Take it as criticism? Does that upset you? Does it bother you? Because I won't, you know, it's really easy to say, yeah, it does bother me. Or I get scared or whatever. I'm like, yeah, I, then I don't have to do it. And I'll just, you know. But I oftentimes after the first thing, I always remind myself, hey, did you have fun today? Because I really enjoyed watching you play. That's a good way of putting it. You know, it's a, it should be fun. Like we all said, the good players have fun playing, so they keep playing. They play a lot. They practice a lot in every house. But if a parent pushes a player into it and he doesn't have fun, he's never going to be any good because he won't practice. I mean, I look back at my career when I used to throw balls off the wall at the field house in UConn and kind of, you know, and simulating double plays and stuff. Well, it was fun. People look at me, what the hell are you doing? But it was fun for me to do that, and that made me better. So, you know, fun is the most important thing and the stress and everything. And But it's no fun when you got pressure on a little kid. He's out there. He strikes out. He walks back to the dugout. And all of a sudden, he feels like, you know, like a little, like a nothing, like, you know what I mean? And the parents <laughs> up there yelling at the umpire and all this stuff. And that's not that's not a healthy situation. No, I tell, I told, I always tell kids, I tell kids when I'm teaching them, like on the infield, I said, if you make an error, I said, you guys know, I go, I go, Superman. I said, you know, Superman. I said, you know, he wears the S on his chest. When I go, Wonder Woman, what? I go, these heroes, they have these, you know, on their chest, they have that S or whatever. I said, whenever you make an error, the moment you make an error, 
you turn around and you act like you are spreading, you are Superman. You stick out your chest really high, you hold your head up high, and you stick out your chest. I said, act as your Superman the moment you make an error. And, and, you know, they look at me and I said, because one, it automatically helps you feel more confident in yourself. Two, the, the, your pitcher or whoever will feel more confident and say, okay, you're okay. And then I go, I go, so those two things happen. So it's important to do that. And it's funny because I tell parents, I'm telling the kids and the parents when I'm telling them, they'll listen and they're like, oh, that's a good advice. I love that advice. And I said, yeah, it's also for you as parents. The moment your child makes a mistake, you're supposed to stick out your chest like Superman too. Head up and look, because the moment you a child makes a mistake, usually the first thing they do is they look at their they look in the stands at their parents. First thing they do, they make a mistake, they look at their parents. And what do we do as parents usually? We often, if a child makes a mistake, we put our head down and go, oh, like in disappointment, as it's a, as because it's like a reflection of you or something like that. Like you did it if they made the mistake, rather than you know what, stick your chest out, keep your head up, because that's the first thing they're going to look at, and if you're doing it, they're going to do it too. Right. That's a good point. But uh, again, it gets back to having fun. And the thing about playing any sport is about uh, being relaxed and having confidence. And a lot of times you make an error. Like we had, uh, I had a shortstop in Kansas City, uh, Kurt Stowell. Great, great talent, great tools. My first year coaching, you know, it was first year in the big leagues as a coach or anything because I wasn't good enough to play in the big leagues. But I couldn't realize how non-confident some of these players were. You know, they strike out or they think they're going to strike out for the rest of the time up or they, or they make an error. But anyway, Chris Stowe was walking down the runway to this dugout before the game started. And he says, uh, he pats his glove. He goes, hey, I don't know if I can catch the ball today. I said, what do you mean? He said, my glove doesn't feel right. Now, here I am now, major league coach. This guy's a major league player. I go, well, Kurt, let me tell you something. Just don't tell the pitcher. And he laughed. <laughs> and uh, so what happened is uh, – I said, to you, I played shortstop too. And you can get in a slump fielding the ball. As you know, Domar is a shortstop. Yeah. You just can't read the hop. Yep. And you, you got chance. You know, you, Dave, you know, you've been there, I'm sure, too. So I said, no, I mean, uh, Kurt, just go out there, play where you want to play, but take two steps toward the pitcher or the catcher. Take two steps in, make every play a little bit easier. You know, the pipe principle, the deeper you are, the farther you got to go to get the same ball, the angle, and everything. So just play a little shallower and, and see what happens. So, he played, he made some great plays, and he just after the game, he said, I was so relaxed because I said, because you didn't have to rush everything. You, you just got there and picked it up and threw the guy out. And just little things like that. But the confidence factor is so important. And for a coach to instill confidence in a player is even more important, I think. You know, a lot of coaches are negative, and, you know, you strike out. I mean, I had a manager in my league, I used to watch him. Guys strike out, and he'd turn around and go, like, you know, put his hands up, what the hell are you doing? Everything. <laughs> That just puts more pressure on the player. But there's a lot of techniques you got to use as a coach and as a parent, same thing. And I think a lot of parents uh, put themselves in, in the kids, you know, shoes, so to speak. And they weren't probably really good themselves, but now they expect them to be good and expect them to be the big leaguers and stuff like that. Hey, Nomar, what's your, what's your preparation? I, I love listening to you as a broadcaster. I, I think – when when I watch sports, like I, I love Hubie Brown in basketball because he tells you why. I like that about you as well, uh, whether you're calling the Little League baseball or, or a big league game. What What's your prep like uh, as a broadcaster now, and how is it different from when you were as a player? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I, there's a lot of preparation. I mean, I do pre uh, prep before games. You know, uh, I prep before my 
when I do a pregame show to a postgame show, there's preparation, um, you're broadcasting the game. So I think the biggest thing when I first got into broadcasting, that was one of the things that I was constantly asking. Um, and not many people, it, it's funny because I thought there might be a, like a playbook of, okay, well, this is how you prep. And it's really, and it, it, there isn't. I was like, so where's the playbook? You know, like, where's the, where's the scouting report? Let me go read that. Do you guys have that? And everybody's looking at you. Like when I go to Broadway, they were like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, really? I, you guys, can you show me what I'm supposed to, what am I, what am I supposed to study to prepare for this game? What am I supposed to do? And it, I realized in the broadcasting side, it's really individual. So then I started asking people how they do it. And then you start taking bits and pieces from people to say, okay, and then you kind of conform it into your preparation. And I, you know, I've done this for a while and that's, but I think that was one of the hardest things was just trying to understand and learn. And then sometimes you're like, man, I'm spending way too much time or I can spend less time or, and, and just kind of understanding the nuances of that. So that takes some time and an understanding, but it's, but I also feel, gosh, I know if I don't prep or if I don't have the preparation uh, and I'm on the air, or I'm doing something, man, the lack of confidence I feel or the dread or it just and it just feels like it was an I was awful that day and I go man I had an awful show today boy I really messed up and that's all on me because if I didn't prep right or I I prepped for the wrong thing man it, it just your lack of confidence um, really goes down and I and I feel like it it ex, I exude that on the air so that's so that's was always important for me as a player I mean it was always making sure you're prepared because that confidence came out I think I owe that to uh, my teammates, first and foremost, is that I should be prepared when I go out there. Um, so before the game, I was doing that, uh, studying the scouting reports, understanding how I'm going in, talking to the pitchers, talking to other teammates and, and getting some information, constantly doing that and learning on the fly. And, you know, whether it was preparing myself physically too, I was doing that. That was always, I was so routine oriented. I think, um, I don't think people, I, I know my teammates knew my routine and everything. I mean, uh, that I had, and it was every minute was accounted for. But I think oftentimes even some of the media didn't really understand how kind of crazy I was when it came to that. But it was all part of my my preparation for that game. Share that a little bit with our audience. What what was your preparation like? What was your? Because you had a unique I mean, pre at pre at bat routine. Uh, I, I had a lot of stuff. I had a lot of stuff. There's a. I always tell people there's a difference between superstition and routine and i was both <laughs> i was superstitious and i was routine oriented and i think you know routine there's a routine as far as you know like how i'm you know like putting your uniform on maybe the same way you can say that's superstition like you said but there's also a routine in it because there's like okay uh there's a comfort in this there's uh, i know i'm feeling right to go out there um so that's one, whether, you know, you put on the right sock first, then you put on the left. I think whenever, if you think about when people are getting ready for a job interview, you know, there's a certain, you know, maybe their favorite tie, or maybe there's a favorite, there's a suit that makes them feel good, whatever it may be. Or if you're going to work that day and you, you drive a certain route and let's say the, the, the road is closed that day and you have to go around, you feel a little off because your routine kind of got messed up. The routine makes you feel like, okay, I'm ready to go out there and prepare for my day. Same thing. So I had a routine sometimes from the moment I woke up, uh, like time, like I said, sometimes eating, there was eating. I sometimes ate a little bit more superstitiously than nutritiously, but that was part of it. Uh, and that's, you know, the game can mess with you mentally, but 
I did have a routine as far as routes, as far as getting to the game, uh, you know, whether it was going to the hot tub, whether it was going to work out, whether it was going to exercise. Every minute was kind of accounted for where I was going to be, when I was going to go out there for batting practice, when I was going to go stretch, when I came in, before bat, after batting practice. All of that was just kind of calculated in part of my routine, but it felt like, okay, I was ready. And the other thing for me personally was um, from a baseball standpoint, baseball is a very negative sport. Um, we fail quite a bit of the time, but my routine helped me deal with the failure of baseball. If I did my routine and I felt right and I had an 0 for 4 day, I would come home and say, you know what? Or I made some errors. I just had a bad day. Tomorrow I'm going to get them. But if I my routine was interrupted or and I felt like, man, I was just missing something. I wasn't prepared and I was 0 for 4. I blamed it. I'm like, gosh darn it. You didn't prepare today or you weren't ready. You messed up. Like I blame myself for my routine being interrupted. And that was what my, I would go to that as an excuse. But so I wanted the routine. So I just said, I could mentally say, you know what? It was just a tough day. We're going to get them tomorrow. So Nomer, how about this pre-pitch? And everybody has a pre-pitch routine. And you say it with yeah. golfers a lot. And now we got the time, the clock, you know, the pitch clock. Uh, would that mess you up, you think? Not at all. I, I, no. There's a misconception out there. Everybody thinks, oh my gosh, there's no more rule the clock. or No more, I think. So my whole thing was done less than eight seconds. Yeah. Um, and so it never would have messed me up. Um, I, you know, maybe walking up, I, that's easy to change the time or routine. I don't know what the time of clock, that would have been easy to walk up and figure that out. I don't know how long it took up, but with the moment a pitch happened, uh, I never, st- I always kept one foot in the box. Um, I mean, I know really, that. I, I always, I always kept one foot in the box. And by the time I messed with my gloves and I stepped back in, that was less than eight seconds. And people don't realize the moment I step back in and I'm tapping my toe, I don't have a set number. I'm actually at that moment. Now I'm waiting on the pitcher to pitch. So as soon as he starts going to wind up, then I stop tapping my toes and it's part of my routine and timing and everything. But that was, that was, there was no set time. Um, so I was done in less than eight seconds. So I would have been ready. It wouldn't have bothered me one bit. There's misconception. Everything I took forever. And I was like, no, actually, I thought I was the epitome of the speed up rule because I was swinging at the first pitch and I was probably standing on second by the time, you know, if you blink, I was already, my bat was over. So I was all about speed up and fast. Well, I love yeah. the clock. I think the clock is such a great thing for this game. I think it has helped the pace. I think it really changed last year. Uh, I thought it was great. Uh, and so um, I love it. Yeah, I think it's a great thing. I mean, you know, the best thing is they did it right. They started in minor leagues. So some of these minor league players came to the big leagues. They believed in it, and they kind of sold it to their teammates. Now, if they all of a sudden did it, you know, all of a sudden everybody's going to hate it. There's a few guys come out against it, you know, talk about arm injuries, whatever like that. But I think it's the best thing ever happened. You get rid of all the dead time. The game's like half hour quicker. But the big thing, you don't wait in between pitches like you used to. Yeah, yeah, I know. And, you know, I'll tell you, uh People don't realize what's hurt, why it used to be so slow. What really caused, what really caused the, the pace to, to drop down dramatically was, was commercials. The moment that commercials and everything came into the game, that really has slowed the game down. And people are like, well, what are you talking about? Well, I'll, you know, I remember when we were playing, it was funny when I was playing, you know, not all spring training games were televised, right? And so we would shoot in spring training. How could we play a 14 to 13 game in like two hours? And there was like six pitching changes and they're, and they're like, what? And they're like, it's had happened. Spring training, you were done in like two hours. It was 13 to 14 and six pitching changes and all this stuff. How come it was so quick? Well, it's because you were running in and out of the dugout. 
there was, you were like, let's go, here you go. And I remember um, one time sitting around um, uh, friends of mine's dads and, you know, dads are sitting around. They're like, you guys now and today, you're so lazy. You guys walk to your position in another dugout. Used to hustle. There's no hustle. There's no this. And I said, well, we can't. And they look at me like, well, what are you talking about? You can't. I said, why would I hustle out to shortstop and be out there, and especially in, in when it's cold and in April in Boston, and sit out there for two minutes and freeze? I only need to throw one or two. I'm loose. But then I got to wait two minutes or two and a half minutes, two minutes for a national. Now it's two minutes and 45 seconds. And they were like, what? And I said, yeah, there's a clock. The umpire has to hold the clock. We're waiting for the commercial to be over. And they're like, I never knew that. I said, yeah, early on. So now, so now when you think about it, now your pitcher is going, well, I'm going to be, I don't need to hustle out there. I have two minutes. So you start moving slower. You start getting out there to your position. You start walking. You start killing the time in between the inning starts. So now the pitchers are slowed down. You as a position player, so down. So the commercials and the downtime in between naturally start to slow your pace down and your rhythms of the game and everything. So that's where the pace kind of hurt. So now that you're forced with the clock, now it's, I think the clock is great, but I think that's where that that's really what influenced the pace. And I'm glad they kind of addressed it now with the clock. Yeah, hurry up and wait. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was, right? It's hurry up and wait. So, but we're not going to get rid of commercials because they're not going to get rid of the money. So, uh, another thing that helps the game out. too is that number throws to first base. I mean, I know it's helped the base runners to a certain extent, but yeah, how many times you watch a game in the past and there'd be a catcher on first base? No offense to the catchers, but you know, he hadn't stolen a base in six years. And all of a sudden, a pitcher thrown over two or three times. I said, What the hell are you doing? I'm sitting there standing on a scout. And I said, What the hell are you doing? A guy hadn't stolen six years, but sometimes the pitcher's getting that thing where they just they got to throw it first. Yeah. And yeah, yeah not one, two, three times. And that kills the game, but yeah. that, that's another good rule they put in there. And I think, you know, between the pitch clock and throwing over the first base, it has a little more excitement to the game. It speeds the game up. Like I said, it's not the overall time. It's the, the dead time in between that's limited a lot of that. Yeah, I agree. I like it. I really like the new rules. So you got any other rules you put in there if you wanted, if you had a chance to be a commissioner for a day? Oh, man, new rules I would put in there. Well, one, I would um, I would put back – the the taking out at second base like i said i would love we were talking about that earlier i would want to put that bring that back where you can go out there not and not viciously and everything you monitor that where at least you can reach and touch second base but i want to see that athleticism back in the middle infield like we talked about i would love to see that i I would like to see that back uh that would be one um you know the one interesting one if we're talking about safety and it and i know it may and it's funny because as much as i'm old school whatever and and safety but the one would be I wouldn't mind if I saw a double first base, to be quite honest with you. I know this sounds strange coming from me, but if you put, you know, I know they're like, oh, softball, when they put, put that base or that orange base behind it or whatever. Um, I know now that the bases are bigger, so that's probably helped that first base. But one, that 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 play up the line for the first base, that throw goes up the line to, to protect them. But the other thing, too, is that rule as a runner, as you're going down, like you're supposed to stay in your lane. And then at the last minute, you're supposed to reach left and then touch the bag, like, that's a hard one. It's hard for the umpires. It's a judgment to say, oh, they're out of the line. They're not in the line. That one where you're hitting, and then you have to hit them in the back. If you had that base over there, now you have your lane. There is no excuse. If you run out of the lane, you're running out of the lane. You, you're supposed to be over there. So that one I've kind of heard people talk about. I've been actually kind of open to because of, of it, 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 it helps with injuries, and it helps with uh, that rule. That's just kind of vague. I don't like those vague rules like that. Well, that rule actually uh, 
it doesn't penalize a bad throw. You make a bad no. throw, and so you get reward, rewarded for it. You know, rewarded with right. it, and then the guy is out and runs go back to the base. But the one rule I like to see change is that the ground rule double, uh, ground rule double, as Joe Torrey would call it, the book rule double. You get guy on first base, say three two count. He's had he's he's taken off on a pitch. Guy hits one. Happened mm-hmm. one time we're playing Fenway. Guy bounced him over right field fence. You know how far that is. And he, yeah, and he stayed at second. He has to go to sec, third base rather than score. third base. Yeah, I mean he yeah. could have. You know, he actually got the third almost by the time the ball uh, bounced over the fence. But I think that should be umpire's judgment where the runners are, and I think that should be you know, the guy should be able to score in that. You know, long double that bounced over the fence. Yeah, the other thing too I would like to see from a, a technology because of the technology standpoint is <clears throat> try to see is try to come up with something to say, okay, what's a check swing and what's not? That'd be another one now where it's not, where we, there's gotta be something now to figure out, okay, what are we gonna, what are we going? Cause you know, the book saying, well, if you make an attempt at the ball, well, listen, I'm always making an attempt at the ball. If I don't think I'm gonna, cause my mind as a hitter <clears throat> has to be yes, yes, no. It can't be no, 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 yes, I'm gonna swing. You have no time to catch up to it. So your mind is, so I go every single pitch, I'm gonna make an attempt at the ball. So it's, I, I think there that could be I, I want to see that more clarified. And then with technology now is to say, OK, where, you know, where on the plate or the area that we see that we can say, OK, it's a swing or it's not. I would love to see that more uh, clarified and say, OK, almost to the point where you can kind of take it out of the umpire's hands, too. And it's not a judgment to say if he went or not. <laughs> yeah. Almost every time you see a replay, it shows that he did go. Right, you right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> or there's like, wait a minute, he went like there's something like, wait, he just moved his lower half and then the, they called it. So, yeah, I think, you know, because I, I, as, um, as a player, I was so mad when the home plate umpire called it instead of the first yeah. base umpire. And I'm like, you got to ask. I don't care if he, he got it wrong or right, but I, I just feel yeah. better that you're not calling it, you know? So, it's, yeah, right. I, I would love to get that. I would love to find a rule to, to fix check swings. Yeah. Well, the other rule I think is bad is uh, when a hitter gets drilled, they throw a warning out, and you penalize the wrong team. I mean, I got thrown in a game because of that in the last <laughs> couple of years. I mean, I hated that rule. I mean, if a guy drills a guy, either throw him out of the game or don't say anything, let the other team retaliate, and then it's over. But if you don't, uh, you know, if you don't retaliate right away, it festers until the next day. And if you do retaliate, you're going to get thrown out of the game. And I can tell you a story about Kershaw, but uh, – I think that's a rule that let the umpires control the game. Don't put them in a position where they got to put a warning out to prevent something from might happen later on. But yeah. I think the players know how to play the game well enough that if you get drilled, I'm going to protect you, but I'm going to drill the guy in the back or drill him in a hip or something like that. I'm not going to drill him in the head. Now, if he throws his head, of course, you got to get him out of there. But there's a lot of times that you know the guy hit him intentionally, and so yeah. they warn him, but then you, you penalize the wrong team because they can't retaliate. So something's got to be done with that rule, I think. Yeah, I think they have to look at that definitely different, differently for sure. Yeah. No, Mark, well, Georgia Tech, where you you know you went to college, is you know I don't know how much kids follow college baseball anymore, but was at one time a powerhouse, and you guys were well represented on the Golden Anniversary team. I think you had nine players placed on that fifty-man team back in the early two thousands when they came out with it. You were an All-American there, but you were also an academic All-American at Georgia Tech. Talk, talk to your experience there a little bit. How did that prepare you for the big leagues? What were some of the played with some some uh, some pretty good teammates there as well? But share a little bit about that experience. How that prepped you for your your success at the big leagues? Uh, well, one, it, it prepped me um, being far away from home and being on your own. Um, 
that definitely uh, was a big one. Um, and being away from home, but also in, a, in an environment where you were support, not like, you know, think about, man, I was like, man, I got dropped out of high school. What it would have been like for me if I had just gone right out of high school and just thrown into a professional life. That's it's not easy. You really got to be mature, prepared and ready to go do that um, and, uh, and understand what it takes. It's funny because my brother did that, but he had me to fall back on and understand and prepare and say, okay. Um, and also parents who have already gone through it will understand it too. So that support where a lot of people are like, okay, parents don't understand it. Kids don't understand it. I don't care if you have an age, it's really hard for an age. It just, it just, it's hard. Uh, so that, I think that was one thing that it prepared me for. So I thought when I got out of college, man, going to the pro ball, I thought for my life and taking care of myself was easy because I've been doing that for three years and that's not a problem in understanding and making sure of all the little things doing your like little things, finding a place, doing your laundry, uh, finding food, fending for yourself, all that used to doing that. That was one. Um, the other thing from a baseball side, the, the benefit of, uh, the way Jim Morris coached and also Danny Hall, um, it was very, it was kind of on a, the professional style. What I mean by that is you see a lot of college programs and even in today's game where shoot, every pitch is called, uh, from the coach, um, their co- uh, you know, from the dugout, you know, all these, um, all these plays, all these things that are just, they're controlling everything. And you're looking and they're telling you when to pick, they're telling you when to do every, every motion is called from the dugout. Um, that wasn't, that was, that didn't happen there. Um, I came from California. A lot of the colleges here, I was a little guy. It was all about small ball. You were learning, you were bunning a lot. You were doing different things, moving a guy over 90 feet, um, shoot. There was not much bunting going on whenever they were taking like you're swinging the bat, let's go, you know, you know, not against the bunt, but only when it's needed. But we're gonna you, we trust our guys, and it was like wow. So it was almost I thought from a playing standpoint, it prepared me that from a professional level. So I appreciate that from Coach Morris and 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 Danny Hall, and we also had players that were studs. So I played with Jay Payton, Jason Baratek, Brad Rigby, um, and uh, just to name a few, and we we understood that we were, we were talented and we had other guys that were so talented that we could kind of police ourselves. And we had a good group that understood what it took uh, to get there and believed in ourselves. So, so that was nice to be a part of a, a team like that. So I think those things prepared me. The other thing was doing well in school, um, getting uh, some education under my belt also relieved a lot of stress for me when I did go into the big leagues, or I mean, I did go into pro ball because I said, you know, um, if I don't, if I fail here at a professional level, I still have an education to fall back on and a great education to fall back on. So that relieved a lot of stress as well for me. What was your discipline of study? I was a business management major. I, uh, you know, at the end, in hindsight, I went over there. I was really good at math and I was like, I went to an engineer school and I'm like, why did I not just do um, industrial engineer? And I was thinking about that. I don't know why I ended up saying, oh, I'll just do business management. I think at the time I was thinking more baseball than I was the, uh, <laughs> the actual major. Uh, um, but I was business. Uh, I, I was, I studied business management at Georgia Tech. Obviously successful. You were academic All-American and and uh, that's not a bad major to have when you're going into professional sports. So you're not relying on others to to manage your finances, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a it's a different. It's still <clears throat> it's still a different animal, and it's still different the way they you know wasn't uh, there. It was more. You're right. There's from the finance standpoint, you learned some of that, but it was more about running a actual business from other and, and other aspects of it. And that was uh, yeah. you know from a manager. So it was really it was it definitely helped. 
Well, no doubt you're a very special player. You had the intelligence, and you're well prepared when you got to the minor leagues. I mean, one reason they sent you, I had nothing to do with you going double. I mean, a ball. I'm glad you did high A, but you know the scouts had really good reports about you. I remember one thing they said about the fact you threw sidearm, and I was a big believer in you can't mess with a guy the way the guy throws. So we talked to the coach. Look at, he can throw sidearm. Don't mess with it. He can throw you know as hard as guy throws overhand. Plus you throw on a run really well. Can you throw sidearm? A lot more shortstops are thrown that way now than in days when you started, I think. Maybe you started something. But you were very talented, very coordinated, very athletic. You were able to do it, get rid of the ball quick, and uh, it worked for you. And I've seen guys, I've seen pitchers, they try to change their arm angle and everything else. And, you know, to me, you can't change the way a guy throws, especially when you're 20, 21, you're 22 years old. So, uh, yeah. You never had anybody try to change it, did you? Uh, you know, it's funny because – you know, you mentioned about like the whole walk, you know, people telling me to walk, people tell me, you know, different things about my game. And, and when they mentioned it, I, I just said, I always, I always heard them and I said, okay, thank you. I, I, I respect the information you're giving me and I get that. And I said, but am I failing right now? Am I struggling right now? And I know you're trying to stop me potential struggles. I said, but I've gotten to, this level or I'm being uber successful in the way I'm doing it right now. And why would I necessarily change right now with that success? Um, even though I respect that. Yeah. is to get to that next level. I said, okay, but I'm still doing it this way. And, you know, such as walking, I'm like, yeah, well, I'm hitting 270, 280 or 290 or I'm hitting 300, whatever it is. Like what does the actual walk do for me when I'm hitting this way, you know, other than, take away my aggressiveness and now I can't hit 300 or whatever drive in. Um, so until I start definitely, you know, failing or getting out or hitting 250, it's like, Hey, what's this whole walk thing? Do I have to be more patient? Do I have to look at better? Like, okay. So I would always, I said, I wasn't against what they would say. I always respected their advice, but I always would just come back and talk to them about it. And, and I was, I was a big, and I still am. And I always tell every kid that I'm, um, um, trying to help or if I may be teaching instructing is don't be afraid to ask me why I will never say I will never say because I told you so I always will have a reason because oftentimes even in pro ball it when somebody gave me instruction I always ask them okay now why do you why do you want me to throw overhand okay all right and then I would listen to them about wanting to throw overhand more and I said okay but when I throw overhand I would say here's what happened here's what would happen to me you know I get out in front I have a tendency to get my my head out in front more or I don't, I don't close that front shoulder. My front shoulder, when I get over overhand, for some reason, has a tendency to open wide. I'm over the top, and now my my ball is really sailing over. So, and then I also, I also know for myself, I have no touch when I throw overhand compared to my touch when I throw sidearm. I learned that when I moved to third base. I remember playing third base when I moved over in the big leagues. I was with the Cubs, and the very first play I got for a double play, I threw to, I threw overhand to Todd Walker and it just went sailed right by his face. And he, and he just was like, Oh my God, he looked at me. I threw it so hard and it went right by him. And I'm like, and he just looked at me. He's like, dude, you can't throw it that hard to me. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I thought, okay, I got to get on top and I got to throw and I threw it overhand. And so then I started learning how to kind of still throw like I do from shortstop and I threw sidearm and I told them, okay, I'm going to throw sidearm to you though. And it's going to have some natural movement, but it'll be perfect every time. But I'm going to have more, but I'll have better touch. He said, no problem. I'll take that. And I told him where's, so we worked on that. 
But that's just kind of an example where I would tell people, well, this is why I don't want to change because this is what my tendencies happen to do for me. And then we would discuss that with the coaches and stuff. And then they're like, oh, okay. Um, and that's, you know, when I'm, when I am, when I am now talking to people like younger kids, different levels, you know, give me some advice from high school level, college level, whatever. I always tell them, I said, you better, I go, the whole, the, your journey through this is to understand yourself. I said, you have to realize this. It's about you understanding you and ask the question why, because then you can start understanding yourself. Because as you go along, don't be afraid to start asking or coaches will try to do things to you, but you have to answer. You have to ask why. And then you have also your answer why. And then you guys come to a conclusion. Um, well, I think, uh, you know, my job with the Red Sox is teaching coaches how to become better coaches. And I was told a big thing when you tell them to do something, tell them why. Mm-hmm. First of all, you remember it more. Plus, it makes more sense to them. They say you can't get thrown at third base for the first or the third out. Well, tell them why. And they remember it a lot easier. And another thing is overcoaching is worse than undercoaching. And like with you, the way you threw, right away somebody said, well, you can't throw a sidearm from shortstop like that. But you know what? You can do it. It's not broken. Don't try to fix it. And I know for myself, I used to kind of throw a little bit of sidearm. I didn't have as strong arm as you did, but I threw a little sidearm. Or, you know, I was a short arm, you know, get rid of ball quick guy. But if I tried to throw overhand, it didn't go as, didn't go as well. I mean, I just had no, that wasn't my strength was up there. It was like, you know, three quarters, low three quarters. Yeah. And plus having a touch. I, I, I agree with you as far as getting a touch. I had a better touch throwing, you know, coming in and throwing a second base and making a double play. I had a better touch throwing on the run sidearm, almost underarm, than I did trying to come up throw overhand. So if it works, if it works, don't, don't try to fix it. Yeah. Okay. No, but you're well, very, I mean, you could tell by your, your comments. I love the comment. I wrote it down. You understanding you. I use that with, with players all the time and trying to find the center. I was shooting with somebody the other day and like, what do you look at on the rim? What are you shooting for? And I said, well, here's my physical target, but really I'm trying to hit the center of me, not to sound Zen like, but, um, this self-awareness you have, uh, a lot of parents nowadays are turning their children over to <clears throat> hitting coaches, pitching coaches, skill coaches, drill coaches, and they're relinquishing that, I don't want to use the word control in a bad way, but that control of educating their child on the game. Who, who were your early mentors in baseball? How did you learn the game to, to, to become who you are today? <clears throat> Hands down, my father, no doubt. My father. I, it's, um, and I, I, I realized as, old, as I got older and you know, what he was doing and for me. And it's really that understanding. I mean, gosh, I'm still learning from my father. I talk to my parents every day, um, which is awesome. And I, I always say if I can be half the parents they are, I'm, I'm, I'm doing amazing. I'm, I'm unbelievable. Um, but they, but, but my father taught me the game. He understood me the way he was teaching me, the way he taught my brother too, the way he was teaching us as kids. Um, but a, a perfect example was when I went to college, we were talking about like when I went to college, he couldn't watch me. It's not now there. It's great. I love all these streaming. But I know one of the hardest things for me to do was to leave. Call. My dad was at every single high school sporting event that I was at, whether I was playing football, soccer, baseball, he was at every single game that I did. You'd, you know, miss work and then have to go back late at night and make up the work he lost. But he was there all the time watching me and everything. So I know when I went to college, it crushed him because now he can't see me. Now he can't do that. But I remember when I was struggling in college and I called him and I'm like, I'm having a tough day. I'm like, I'm awful. I don't know what I'm doing at the plate. Blah, blah, blah. He goes, all right, hold on. He goes, and he just started talking to me. He's like, 
all right, are you missing? You know, it's like, are you missing? Well, no. Or this pitch, was, what happened? I fouled it. Okay, when you fouled it, where did it go? And he would, I would tell him where it went or how. It, and then as I'm doing that, he's like, all right, here's what you're doing wrong. So it was just because he knew me so well. He knew my swing. He understood me. Like, here's what you're doing. Here's how you go fix it. You know this. We worked on Go do that. And next thing you know, I was like, he was like, how to go the next day? Oh, I got four hits. Thanks, Dad. You know, yep. He goes, you're right. I was doing so. As he was like, without those little things, nuances, he knew and it how it started teaching me to understand myself. So I got to a point where I could tell anybody could be my hitting coach. If I was working in the cage and big leagues or professional level, I can hit in the cage and I could pull somebody off the street and say, okay, you're going to help me today. You're going to be my hitting coach. And they look at me like, what? No, because I could tell you what I want you to just look for and help me give feedback. So I can get a difference between what I'm feeling and what I'm doing. Cause I understand when things are going wrong, what my, what I'm, I have a tendency to do. I know when things are going right, what I have a tendency to do. I can look at sometimes the trajectory of the ball. The, all of this was the understanding. And my dad just taught me all of those things um, since I was from a young, from a young age um, as my, my swing adjusted from also how big I was. I wasn't a very big kid, how I have to generate or what the little things that I can do to separate myself to people who had a lot of power have a lot of power when I was a kid, but I can make contact, how I have to adjust my swing to make contact, you know, lower the bat, drop the bat, you know, different, all these little things he was teaching me. And, um, and then one of the coolest things, I think one of the ultimate compliments for my father was the first time I talked to Ted Williams. When I talked to Ted Williams, Dan Duquette set that up. And uh, I remember um, when Ted called me on the phone, it's funny, I had some high school friends in town at the time. And I told him, Ken Williams calling me tomorrow at 10 a.m. Don't pick up the phone. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And sure enough, at 10 a.m., the phone rings. And they're like, oh, my God, it's him. It's him. And so I, I, I talked with Ted for like 45 minutes. And he, if anybody knows Ted, he would just pound you with questions, especially why he wanted to see how much you knew about hitting. Pound him. And nobody had ever pounded me with questions like this. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, well, I'm not going to tell Ted Williams. I don't know. I go, Even if I'm wrong, I'm just going to, I got to give Ted Williams an answer. Whenever he's asking me, I'm going to, so I started answering his questions in my head, you know, because as a kid, you're going, uh, better off like, I don't know, sir, you tell me. Like, no, I was answering his questions. So then it was an unbelievable conversation. He hung up, Daniel Kick calls me back. He's like, well, I guess it went really well. And I go, why? He says, Ted Williams just called me back and he said, you know, you're the first person he ever talked to that ha- they answered every one of his questions right. <laughs> and I was like, That's wow. Stupid. And And so then... I hung up with Danny Kett and I picked up the phone and called my dad. I said, Hey dad, guess what? You just answered every one of Ted question, Ted Williams questions. Right. Cause all I could do is when I answered it was think about what my dad had taught me. So I was like, so it was pretty, I go, that's the ultimate compliment I can get my father uh, outside of other stuff, but like just from a teaching and hitting, but he taught me to understand myself a lot uh, throughout the game. That's, that's good advice for regular, you know, any player that, you know, you got to know yourself. You got to be your own coach, especially when you're in a batter's box. I mean, you got to make your own adjustments, but know what you're doing wrong so you can adjust back to doing it right. Yeah. I think, I think it's funny. You mentioned about all these kids now, they have all these, these coaches, you know, these hitting coaches. And I question whether they have a hitting coach or a swing coach. Big difference. Yeah. We talk about more more swing coaches than there are hitting coaches and teaching you how to hit. And like you said, make the adjustment. And you know what? It's funny because even, in, you know, we talk about the analytic game as well. You know, I think what's happening is we are, you know, we are, we think about data, for example. And I, if you think about, I always tell, I go, if you have data, 
and you're making a decision. Do you want historical? Do you want how do you want to make a decision or how do you want to make a moment decision? You want historical data or you want real time data? You know, and like what's better, real time data as as it's happening or historical? You know, if I pose that question, you're like, and I just say, well, you want both. You want historical and you want real time. And I said, because both are important to you to make an ultimate decision of going forward. So the problem right now is in this game is we are this baseball is constantly played on historical data right now. Even the managers are making historical data. They're not really making decisions on real-time data. I see that so often. And players are doing the same thing. It's like, well, this is what the stats tell me. This is what the historical data tell me. I have to do this. Yeah, but what's the game telling you? What's the real thing that's happening? So even in that, at that, they're not, they're going off historical data. Okay. He usually throws this pitch, this pitch, 80% of the time at this particular moment, this is what I got to do. Like, who cares? What exactly are you doing? What's going on? How are you swinging? How are they actually attacking you at the moment? Forget that. Like, what's the real time data? And that's not being taught of understanding that even, you know, a good hitting coach will understand you. Okay. Miss that. What's the adjustment you have to make? How do you understand yourself? If that happens, what's the little things that we're working on to get you back on track for that one particular pitch from pitch to pitch or from at bat to at bat? Um, and that's the, that's the separator. I always say, you know, good hitters in the big leagues can make an adjustment from game to game. Um, great hitters can make an adjustment from at bat to at bat. Truly great hitters make adjustments from pitch to pitch. That's a good point. You know, we've kept you a lot longer than uh, you probably wanted to be here, but we could talk for another two hours. But you know, <laughs> you're saying it's very interesting and very, very, uh, you know, teachable, very uh, intellectual for what we know and everything. But uh, it's really thanks for your time. Uh, it's always great talking to you. And yeah. uh, we all learn a lot of things. And like you said, the game's not that tough, but, you know, smart guys make good players. And you're definitely a smart guy. And, uh, I also said a superstar is a guy with super uh, intelligence and super ability, and you're right in that category right there. So that's why you had a great career, and uh, really appreciate your time and look forward to seeing you again somewhere. I don't know where. I'm not traveling too much anymore, but uh, I'll see you on TV probably. <laughs> no doubt. Well, I, I'll tell you, and I, I got to leave with this, and I know because everybody's like talking about me and everything, but uh, I, I do have to say this. I said, Shape, one thing I've always appreciated and loved uh, about you and when I met you and everything and is – is here you where you were our minor league uh, director talking you you always treated me and so many of us all of us were as professionals and and you and you understood it you got it and you understood you know when we were in the minors the position we may be in and and you were there you treated us uh you it wasn't about running to the front office hey this guy is doing this wrong or he's it was always about being the actual individual and how we could be better as individuals whether it's from actual playing or just as humans and just in life and um and you got that and you understood that and you respected us and i always remember going uh, going through minors with you i was like i never want to lose that respect from him i don't want to lose like he's look at what he's giving in and i know some of us so many of us lou and everybody else in the minor leagues we always talk about that and how we appreciate like you just you were there and understood taught us because there was more to the game than just what's actually going on the field and we always respected and appreciated the professionalism and how you dealt with us and it helped us get to where we needed to be. So I thank you. Oh, I appreciate that. We had some great people as well as great players in the minor leagues. And I was one of the funnest jobs I ever had in baseball and uh, had some great coaches down there. And uh, it was a good time. Yeah. That it was. We had some good times, no doubt. <laughs> hey, no, Marlon, if we, one 
quick last question for you. I heard this from one of our other hosts, and if, if it's uh, if it's true, great. If not, uh, so be it. But I wanted to see if, if it was, you could share just a quick story. I think it'd be a good message to our kids out there that are listening to us. How did you choose your locker when you were at Pawtucket? Oh, uh, I don't think I chose it. I think um, it was just chosen for me. I don't remember. Oh. Yeah, what's the what's the story? Sorry, if I right, kill the we'll, unbelievable story. We'll fill the lore. We'll make it part of lore anyway. The, the The story was that you chose your cubicle or your locker in Pawtucket, the one closest to the door, so you could get out. To, you could get out the field faster than anyone. Uh, sure, go with that one. That sounds great. Uh, that, that actually, my 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 locker uh, at, uh, at in um, in the big leagues at, at, uh, in Boston was closest to the door as well. It was, maybe it was Boston. Maybe that. Yeah, was it was closest to the door. Uh, and if it was to get out, maybe it was to, I don't know, maybe they avoid the media to get out there quicker. I don't know. But I, I don't know. <laughs> you work on uh, that but, and it will make it a part of lore. But I, sure, I thought it was. Absolutely. Get out there quicker. I couldn't wait to get out there. Uh, right. which I, you know what? I, honestly, I was in my element. The best place to be is on the field. And the, the little the, People ask me, do I miss playing? I always say, I don't miss playing. I miss the times I miss playing is when the playoffs start. When I watch playoff baseball, gosh, that's when I miss playing. I just, oh my God, playoff baseball, amazing. But I go, the things I miss are uh, like, I miss, I miss the sound of spikes walking on cement, walking out into the dugout. I miss the smell of the grass. I miss the smell of a brand new baseball, the leather. I miss stretching on grass. Those little things that are, that's what I miss. Yeah, well, that's a great way to, to end it. And I, I love your tribute to Bob, too. Every guest, every person we've had on or I've talked to about Bob shares a similar sentiment. And our, our show is called Touch Em All. And I obviously were thinking of the literal with the bases. But, Bob, you've touched a lot of lives in your time in baseball. And you should feel happy and proud about that. I know I value our time together every week and our phone calls in between. Except when you call me to talk to my son. I don't like that too much. Yeah, he's pretty smart. The kid's pretty smart. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that, Dave. I mean, I've been fortunate to coach and manage a lot of good people as well as good players. And uh, I was fortunate myself to go from a high school coach to a big league coach. And uh, I enjoyed every minute. Uh, that's one thing, like Nomar says, I still miss the camaraderie more than anything else. I mean, you, you remember the people you coached and managed. You forget about a lot of the games. But uh, just the people who've been around and the atmosphere and everything else, what you miss the most. And I'm retired now, and I scouted for 12, last 13 years. I enjoyed that, but that got to be, uh, you know, it, a lot of my buddies are either passed away or they got fired. So it was no, no much fun to hang out with anybody. And they're all young guys and got to know them a little bit, but I'm old. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> now you and I hang out every Wednesday. I enjoy yeah, that. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Bob Schaefer, Omar Garcia-Pierre, thanks so much for your time today. You guys made our audience smarter. We have a sophisticated audience who loves great baseball talk. So thank you for that. And this is Touch Em All, episode 423 on Real Voices of the Game Network. Thanks again, guys. We appreciate you. Uh, thank, thank you. you thank you. Thanks.